Welcome to Gold with Jeanette Schneider, nuggets of inspiration for a bigger, badder, more purposeful life. Each week we share wisdom, insights, and gold from those living their very best lives. After 23 years in finance and a fancy SVP title, I retired at the age of 41 to advocate for women and girls in life, love, and the boardroom. Now the CEO of my own media company, my goal is to change the world for my daughter and her friends. My first book, Lore, Harnessing Your Past to Create Your Future, dropped this fall and is based on what women wish they would have known when they were girls. This is purposeful content, big conversations, and a safe place for us to share our gold and our dreams for the future. Today, my guest is Dr. Caroline Heldman, badass. This woman is the unsung feminist hero, the Gloria Steinem of her generation. A political scientist, political correspondent, and professor at Occidental, Dr. Heldman has dedicated her life to social justice causes and does so because of her own experience with sexual violence. She's authored a number of books, is the lead researcher for the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, and can be seen in Misrepresentation and The Mask You Live In, amongst others. What I love about this conversation is Dr. Heldman's deep understanding of issues, her research-based advocacy, but also that she truly gives us a glimpse into the day-to-day life of an activist. It is a tough calling, but one that suits her well. We talk the value of data-driven arguments as women begin to ask for the pay they deserve and positions of power. We cover the influence media has on our girls and dig into the Me Too and the end rape on campus movements. I will be very honest and share that this was a tough topic for me to cover publicly. While I can stand at a podium and talk numbers, advocate for others, as a survivor of sexual violence myself, I was thrown by how deeply the Me Too movement hits me right in the gut and the heart. I struggled putting the words together, so I ask for your indulgence as I may stumble through my questions, but it's genuine as I learn how to put words and actions to the issues that hit close to home. Let's dig in. Dr. Heldman, I am so excited you were able to call in this morning. I am definitely a fangirl of your work and um, have really enjoyed getting to know you over the last several years um, and just so excited to have you on today. It is so good to be with you, Jeanette. Thank you. Of course. I um, I wanted to, to kind of dig straight in because one of the things that I found um, in working with Dr. Heldman over the last couple of years is, Caroline, you are just this spring of knowledge and information. <laughs> so I, <laughs> while I am definitely deep in the self-help and women's empowerment space, I'm also a numbers nerd. I love facts. I love data. I love figures. And I think that's one of the reasons I love the conversations that you and I get to have, because I may have an opinion about the way the world should work, and a lot of times there's numbers to back that up. And, and one of the things I wanted to start off with and, and ask you about was a question that I got a few years ago from a woman. She was the chief um, diversity officer from a large gaming property. And she asked, she's like, how do we move women to a place of action um, when we're asking them to advocate for themselves, to raise their hands, to ask for better pay, the bigger jobs, to move into office, uh, political office? And one of my answers to her was arm women with data. And I wanted to see what your thoughts were, if, if that would be the same thing, if you had anything else to share, and what kind of data points would you have that you think could inspire women to raise their hands and move into bigger places? Well, like you, I'm a big believer that any 
social issue, political or economic issue, needs to start with a really solid understanding of what the problem is. And the way you get to that is by using data. Um, data also is very kind of raced and gendered, right, in the sense that um, data is generally considered a white man's purview. And so it actually, um, when we bring data to bear in conversations that actually matters. Um, people who otherwise wouldn't listen to concerns being advanced by women or people of color or other marginalized identities um, will listen uh, generally if data is presented. So I actually find data-driven arguments to be the strongest um, arguments that one can make, uh, not only in their personal lives, but also when furthering other causes. And this is kind of a long way of saying that I think presenting uh, women with data on just how vastly underrepresented we are in the halls of power um, is is a good way to motivate women who might otherwise be feeling that they don't have anything to contribute to to actually you know put their hat in the ring. Um, some of the numbers that really st stick out to me are that we have about uh, one in five women in positions of political leadership in the United States. So hovers around 20 percent in Congress hovers around 20% in state legislators, about 10% of mayors, we've never had a female president, and yet women are 51% of the population. And so for me, as I'm talking to women who uh, may be reluctant to consider running for office, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there's a lot of other good data too showing that women uh, who have the same qualifications as men don't actually feel that they are as qualified as men. So data on the imposter syndrome, for example, mm -hmm. um, to, to motivate them to see that, look, there are a lot of jobs that women should be moving into, but our own confidence and all of these messages that we get about ambition um, tend to cause us to not want to go in those, those paths. And I think a last kind of piece of data is that about 30% of girls and boys um, ages seven to nine are interested in being a leader when we ask them about whether or not they would want to be president of the United States. Um, and that that number drops to almost zero by the time um, girls are in their teens. But for boys, it stays about the same. So their levels of ambition uh, are really encouraged and cultivated, whereas for girls, we get all of these signals and messages that it is simply not appropriate for us to be power-seeking. And I think that's one of the most damaging messages girls receive, and we receive it in many different ways. We we receive it early on mm -hmm. from a lack of mentorship, encouragement, et cetera, and then as we move into college, it doesn't get better. It actually gets worse. So, um, you know, letting women know how bad the problem is and that it it's not their fault it is much more societal messages and systems that are sending them those those damaging messages. And you're, you're touching very um, very deeply on something that I've felt so strongly about, and that's, that's girls and the messaging that they receive, right? And I, I can't remember where I, I read this, but I think it's around eight years old that a girl's self-esteem peaks. Because before that, they're looking at the world through the lens. They're almost like little – like narcissistic to some extent, right? It's needs-based. It's it's the world is, is what can be given to me um, by, you know, food, shelter, love, support. Um, but then as they hit about eight to nine years old, that's when their viewpoint, the, the, their world becomes a lot larger and it's outside of themselves. And that's when we start to see girls dumbing themselves down in the classrooms and believing that they're not as good in sports or in math. 
And I know you do a lot of work, especially with uh, the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media. And even looking so far as to what messages are we seeing through film, what messages are we seeing in the movies? And I've had such issues with the Disney princess movies. They're getting better. Um, But I remembered for a long period of time not wanting Olivia, my daughter, to watch Cinderella because of the antiquated viewpoints of women. Um, And just curious, from from your perspective, when you're looking at some of the data that you see in film and advertising and culturally, um, socially, what do you see when it comes to, to girls and the way we're kind of trying to shift the conversation? Are we doing any good in this space? We are getting better, I would say, in the past decade, but we still have a very long way to go. And you're absolutely right that media, you know, has this profound effect, especially on young people. Um, it shapes our worldviews, our values. It tells us who to love, how to love. Um, it tells us who's a hero, who gets to be a hero, right? Uh, who who the villain is. Um, it tells us how we should spend our time, how we should be spending our money. Basically, all of our, our cultural values Um, are inculcated through media. And our cultural values come from other areas too. They come from parents and religious institutions and educational institutions. But media is the primary kind of shaper of young people, mostly because um, they don't see it as being a shaper, right? So it comes in, it's it's entertaining. So they learn about life in in an entertaining way that doesn't feel like they're being lectured to. And so it, it sinks in more deeply, but also simply because they spend more time with devices than they spend with parents. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I think it was about 2013, I saw a study that said children are now spending more time with their devices, i.e. entertainment media and social media than they are with their parents. Um, and it's about an average of about 41 hours per week that that folks like younger than job. 18 are spending on media. It's a full-time job there. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> yeah. I, and I myself have, you know, experiences with my daughter. Like I'll suddenly look over and I think she's playing with one thing on her iPad and she's moved on to a, a, a YouTube video with the content that I don't like and um, having to continually have conversations about what she's watching. Um, and I know that those are some of the conversations within the Gina Davis Institute. That I, I remember hearing that even Gina sits down with her kids and has conversations about what they're seeing so that they can be a little bit more aware of, of the messaging and providing them kind of with the knowledge and understanding of, of what's true and what's make-believe. Um, but it's, I think, it's, it's, it's a tough battle when there's such impressionable little minds. It's a really tough battle, especially when the messages that they're getting are just so patently damaging, right? So uh, one, one area um, of particular note is that characters, female characters are generally missing. So we tend to think of, you know, media as being pretty balanced for kids. It simply is not. Um, We know um, that male characters appear twice as often as female characters in family content. We also know that male characters speak twice as often as female characters in this content and in entertainment family media. But in addition to that, we know that about 22% of female characters are Mm hypersexualized or sexualized, meaning that they've got low cleavage, um, that they're bearing a lot of skin, that their identity is based upon their ability to attract sexual attention from men. Uh, And we know that this is the the sexualization of um, the female characters in children's programming is as sexualized as the uh, rated R content. So um, girls early on get the message that their body is their value. And I think you had talked about the the plummeting of self-esteem earlier. 
I think you can really draw that back to this idea that once girls learn that their primary value is their body, then they shift their their focus internally and develop a lot of body hatred and shame. Um, and we know that the more you know, you kind of view your body as this um, as as your primary value. Um, we call it self-objectification in, in academic literature. The more you do that, uh, the more likely you are to be depressed. You have um, lower you know, personal efficacy or the idea that you can bring about change in the world. You're less likely to pursue leadership positions. You're more likely to have an eating disorder and you're less politically engaged. Um, and so it has a lot of effects on confidence and engagement. Well, and I'm loving the work that you guys are doing there. And I've been watching a lot of programs across the country where, um, you know, the the opposite side, right? You have got your, your Girl Scouts of America who are trying to put more steam and STEM education um, and, and talk specifically about friendships and characteristics or character and values. Um, Girls for Progress, there's several organizations who are trying to do something from the girl aspect. What I've also noticed, too, is there's a lot of actresses and advocates stepping up from the other side of the aisle and asking for the same much I don't know if you saw Natalie Portman's speech um, regarding Time's Up um, I was kind of throwing my fist in the air in solidarity because it's it's nice to see the other side of the aisle um, the, the folks who are involved in the making of the films um, advocate for better content not only for children but for themselves right because it's just they've unfortunately seen um the ugly side of um the objectification of of women through the me too and the times up and not even the movements just the behavior that has become um more widely recognized because of those movements and i know you've been kind of close to them i'd be curious to see um what your thoughts are on how that's working in if you're seeing some change in in the conversations in the past what, six months to a year? Oh, the Me Too movement in Hollywood? Yep. Yes, we've definitely seen a shift, and it's mostly been with women, got to say. Um, I, I think some other interesting data is that only um, 7% of the key uh, decision-making positions behind the scene for popular films are held by women. Um, this is an industry that is its hiring practices look like the 1950s. Mm-hmm. It is strange that they've been investigated a number of times over the years, and yet still have these very retrograde practices. Um, so very few women in the industry. And I think the big kind of wake up is that when you have so few women in a space that is one of the primary purveyors of cultural meaning, it means that the content is going to be very warped. And it also means that environments of sexual harassment and sexually predatory behavior are going to be more acceptable. And We've certainly seen that in Hollywood, where close to two-thirds of women in the industry say they have experienced sexual harassment or other sexually predatory behavior. Um, but I, there's been a, a huge wake-up call with, with Me Too and the um, women organizing and banding together. Um, I am a little pessimistic in, in terms of, you know, I'm a scholar of social movements, and so I look at how change actually happens, um, and change is generally very um, slow and it's incremental. And anytime you're really pushing against an existing social order, you're going to run up against uh, a backlash. And so unless the industry actually puts practices in place, I don't think the the awareness that has been raised by Me Too is is enough to actually bring about real change. Well, it's interesting you say that too, because I understand um, you're, you're an activist at heart, right? You have, um, I, Dr. Haldeman was 
kind enough to write a love letter for my book. And um, it's, I love how you ended it, uh, that you're kind of always looking for the next righteous fight. And I don't think that those were exactly your words, but that's how I kind of think of you, right? Um, and I, I was curious if you could share the correlation between your own personal life and some of the things that you shared in your letter and your activism and your advocacy, because um, knowing that you feel so strongly about certain issues and you want to be involved in, in helping with the move of social justice, but then the other, the scholarly side of you is saying, I'm a little pessimistic unless there's changes. I, I'd like to hear kind of your own story as to how you got involved in this work, both professionally and with your activism, but also what you think we can do as women, especially women raising children, girls, um, who would like to see change. Is it is it pressuring Fortune 500 uh, companies? Is it pressuring political systems to change as opposed to um, kind of going out and, and marching? What What's your, your thoughts on that? And I know that's a, a loaded question with a lot of pieces, but there you go. <laughs> Well, you know, Jeanette, uh, the, I think the beauty of uh, social change is that if you want to shift the power of group, a group in society, let's say advance women's empowerment, and of course intersectionally, because if you, you know, if women of color are advanced, that means everyone is advanced. Um, if if you want to do that, there's so many different ways you can do it, and I think that all of them are important. Um, when I talk with my students about their life path. Um, I always ask the question, um, do you want to work on the outside or do you want to work on the inside? And once and, and meaning, do you want to be an agitator? Do you want to be somebody who applies pressure outside an institution to get it to change? Or do you want to be somebody who works within it? And, um, you know, Hillary Clinton really got slammed um, in the 2008 election when she said, look, in order for civil rights to advance, it required President Johnson to sign off on it, but it, it also required the big push from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and other amazing activists to make this happen. Um, she's right. You Anytime, if you look historically, when there has been a major shift, it requires both. And so I'm someone who's situated, oddly enough, as you've kind of pointed out, um, on the inside and the outside. Mm -hmm. So I have power within formal institutions, educational institutions, and I'm a media commentator. Um, but I'm also, you know, taking to the streets with signs and engaging in, you know, art activism and some other kind of more radical forms of activism. Um, this is a really kind of rambling response, but my, my path here, um, has been driven by my understanding that it all actually matters. I can tell you which ones for me matter more. I think that pushing the, the levers of media uh, that shape the hearts and minds of Americans um, is, for me, feels uh, more impactful than my time in Washington, D.C., working on the Hill and, and passing legislation in Congress. Mm -hmm. um, and that it maybe sounds strange to talk to compare the two. I think both are important, but for me, it feels much more kind of um, deep and long-standing if you can shift the attitudes of a culture via media messaging versus passing legislation that might be overturned in two years. Um, so my path has been that I've been in a lot, I've been in a lot of different seats on the inside and the outside um, and also studied history and social change. Um, and, and in that regard, it's brought me to, you know, this idea that I'm really probably most effective as an outside agitator. Um, within institutions, like going into institutions as an outside agitator, mostly because um, I 
my upbringing allowed me to develop a fearlessness that a lot of people don't have. And it comes at, you know, great personal cost all the time. I'm paying the price for not being properly afraid of institutional power, certain people's power. Um, but with that said, I know that I, I know that I can kind of stand on the front line and say something mm -hmm. that a lot of folks behind me might be worried about saying. Um, and so I use that in order to advance, you know, um, anti-sexual violence work, to advance intersectional feminist work, to advance, um, you know, the rights for LGBTQIA folks. Um, so, yeah, I use that kind of one unique aspect of my, I'll call it personality, um, to really push from the outside. Mm -hmm. In your voice, you have this fearlessness and this ability to to advocate, but you've also had hate mail, you've had messages, you've had some, the ugliness of the other side. A lot of times when you speak up about a subject, your voice becomes an irritation for the other side and they want you to be quiet as quickly as possible. Um, how do you kind of wrap your head around the messages and do you engage? What would be your advice for women as they're coming forward with their stories? And I know you specifically work with victims of sexual violence, most recently traveling with the women from the Cosby trial and being there for them. What do you say to them as they're starting to raise their voices? How do you manage to kind of wade through the um, frustrations on the other side and help other women who are finally finding their voices and stepping up? Yeah, so my work with public survivors is odd in the sense that I'm both, you know, helping them on their journey to find their voice, but also oftentimes offering advice about not using their voice. And it, it sounds almost anti-feminist, but my priority is to preserve uh, the well-being of public survivors. And public survivors, it's a weird kind of label. It's new. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a real position and it's a position where if you're a public survivor, you can expect a lot of very terrible things to happen to you. And so most of my conversations with survivors who are thinking about going public in high profile cases is, um, are you ready for this? Are you emotionally prepared? Are you financially prepared for the retaliation you're going to face? Um, it often comes in the form of, you know, loss of employment, but certainly comes in the form of receiving a lot of hate mail and messages, um, you know, being trolled in real time and at public events, um, having your reputation savaged because that is what happens to public survivors. Uh, just look at what happened with Dr. Blasey Ford recently. Um, that woman's telling the truth. There's 90% chance when the first survivor comes forward that she's telling the truth. 98% chance when a second one comes forward. Three women came forward against Kavanaugh and yet Blasey Ford cannot live in her home anymore. Um, so those conversations are really tough, as in it's great that you want to advance the movement. But let me tell you, the movement um, needs you, but it will come at such a great personal cost. Are you willing to pay that? Mm -hmm. uh, so and I've had this conversation with uh, many Weinstein survivors, with many Cosby survivors early on, with a lot of campus anti or campus rape survivors um, in the campus anti-rape movement. Um, and I would say about 30 percent of the time folks decide that they're they can't do it, mm -hmm. um, in which case um, I, I step forward, right, and and speak on their behalf um, as they are working through things anonymously. And my, unfortunately, my my ability to do that came from being a you know rape survivor, being raped um, by Michael Wilson, uh, a neighborhood, a boy in the neighborhood, when I 
um, was a toddler and Tony Neal, my boyfriend, when I was 17, who, you know, I remember the day after that, um, you know, I had my, I grew up in an abusive family and my, uh, one of my siblings had beaten me and threatened me and he came to pick me up and rescued me and then raped me that night. And I remember, you know, sitting at the, at the breakfast table with oddly enough, a black plate with, um, a gold fork. And I remember it because he was, you know, very, very into the finer things in life. And him saying to me, you know, Tony saying to me, no one will ever believe you. And I realized he was right. And that my fight wasn't to get people to believe me because that doesn't really happen much in a rape culture. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also remember like the resolve on that day that I was going to do everything I possibly could to make sure that another, you know, 17 year old wasn't in the position where she knew that if she came forward, she wouldn't be believed. Yeah. I was with you on the day that um, Kavanaugh, the hearing um, when he was voted and uh, or confirmed. And that was a rough day um, because there was a, a lot of women together. We were at in Sun Valley at Conversations with Exceptional Women. And that was a tough day for female survivors. And it wasn't even political. It was more that I think so many women heard their own voices in Dr. Ford in, in her testimony. And it was, it was a hard day for, for everyone there. And I I can't even, I can't even, I think, put my words together around it because it affected me too, right? Um, To be sitting there and to watch the confirmation and, and hearing what you just said about kind of knowing that, and unfortunately the culture that we, we live in, not many women are going to be believed, but the statistics are there to prove that false reporting is actually statistically very unlikely. It has happened, right? Um, But unfortunately, more women are right than the men who are are saying that they're wrong. So I think it's it's incredibly admirable, and I, I feel very blessed to be around such strong women who advocate for other women because they've experienced it, and they understand it. And, um, it's a it's a tough topic, right? It's a tough topic for me to talk about because I also feel very you know emotional um, hearing other uh, you know rape survivors sharing their stories and and the sheer um, almost the the practice that you have to put into being able to say the words out loud, if that makes any sense. Um, Mm-hmm. in order to be in order to be heard. So I am personally thankful and grateful for you for the work that you do because I know that these women are are fighting against um, cultural norms that that tell us to kind of be quiet and you know not to fight against systems of power. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the end rape on campus because I know that that's kind of your it's a big focus for you right now. Um, and if you could tell me a little bit about what you guys are doing right now in order to help across the country. So the way in which I actually got involved in in national anti-sexual violence work, um, you know, beyond the kind of behind the scenes um, was actually in 2013 when um, I went to at Occidental College, I went to a meeting uh, about survivorship and a lot of uh, young women and one young man came up to me afterward and shared their stories of sexual violence on campus, uh, some at Oxy, some at other campuses. And I then had a steady stream of over 30 students come to me in the next few weeks telling me about their experiences 
not only of sexual violence, but also betrayal by the institution. And it's very common. In fact, there's there's an academic term for it called institutional betrayal, which is what happens when survivors come forward to report that they've been sexually harassed or, or um, sexually battered, assaulted, or raped. Um, and that's when institutions either don't take them seriously or pretend to take them seriously, but then you know, give their perpetrator very light sanctions. Mm -hmm. And this happens regardless of, you know, whether it's a college campus or it's the military or it's a corporate setting. Institutions tend to respond to treating, you know, sexual violence like it's not important, like it's not a real crime when it is. Um, And so I ended up having, um, you know, this kind of epiphany that we needed to do something on college campuses because, as much as the broader culture is a rape culture, meaning it doesn't take rape seriously and in fact glorifies it in its media and acts like it's a normal part of being female, um, I knew that that we could actually bring about change in one institution, meaning higher ed, uh, because there are rules to higher ed. And so if you play within those rules, you can do something. So we launched a national movement. Um, and within a year, Barack Obama had put it on the agenda and he had cited all of these survivor advocates on working on college campuses as the impetus for that. Um, and we use federal complaints. I worked on dozens of federal, you know, Title IX complaints in order to actually put it on the media agenda. And so we put in a, a slew of new laws uh, as soon as Donald Trump was elected. Uh, Betsy DeVos, the new Secretary of Education, um, started reversing those. Um, I think that we won't get those stronger protections back in place until we get different leadership. Um, But it really speaks to kind of the tenuous nature of bringing about change uh, if it's so dependent upon somebody who's at the highest levels, right, of Mm -hmm. just with a, you know, flick of their pen, all of the work that you've done for half a half a decade and, you know, inspired by thousands of activists and hundreds of experts is just reversed. Um, so I'm a little a little down about that. But I do know that, you know, the, the protections that we put into place will matter. Um, in fact, it, I, they do matter because a lot of institutions, even when Betsy DeVos came in and tried to roll back protections, a lot of them said, actually, these are working for us. Mm-hmm. So we're going to continue to do better campus-wide trainings. We're going to continue to do um, our adjudication proceedings, given these guidelines, which are, are more respectful to all the parties involved and fairer for all the parties involved. Um, so I, I continue to work with that. Um, I also worked with a group of students to overturn the the uh, statute of limitations, the time limit for um, prosecuting rape in California. And we've worked in a number of other states. We're about ready to overturn the statute of limitations in Pennsylvania, this legislative session. Um, so I, it's kind of the same group of, of women doing all this work, anti-sexual violence work, trying to pass the Equal Rights Amendment for the, to the Constitution, um, abolishing time limits on prosecuting rape. It's uh, like a feminist activist posse mm-hmm. who's just moving through the world trying to get this done. Well, and I mean, I know that sometimes you suffer, like you said, a flick of the pen, but that's a lot of accomplishment. <laughs> I mean, that's that's amazing because you're, you're catalyzing women together and creating your, your posse is doing a lot of good for a lot of women and a lot of girls that are going through the education system. Um, so I know that there are disheartening moments, but I think at the end of your life, you're going to have a long list of achievements um, that a lot of women are going to be grateful for. So I know that sometimes it's difficult in the fight, but I appreciate what you do. I wanted to ask you, um, and I, I you know, the podcast is called Gold. We're basically sharing negative wisdom and inspiration from from people who live big, bad lives. 
And I'm curious as to what nuggets of inspiration and wisdom, nuggets of gold you would have um, for anyone listening based on your life story, based on your advocacy for self and others. Um, what would you share? Well, Jeanette, I would go back to the data. <laughs> um, so I, in terms of happiness, which I think it should be a common human goal, it often isn't, but I think it should be. Um, the data is pretty unequivocal about the two primary things that make humans happy. Um, one is connection with other human beings and not you know, having 5,000 followers or friends mm-hmm. on social media, but rather cultivating a few close relationships and relying on those relationships to sustain you. Um, and the other is serving others. We know that people, the primary indicator of whether or not you're happy is whether or not uh, you're serving others and, and living your life in that capacity. And so I feel very um, blessed that early on I knew my whole life was just going to be, you know, working 100 hours a week um, in the service of others. And there's nothing more rewarding um, or sustaining than that. And I think I would also say balancing it with a really good dose of self-care. Mm-hmm. So a daily routine and not one that you beat yourself up over, but a daily routine that you do every day. So, you know, I meditate every day and I work out every day and I journal every day and, um, I connect with at least one significant person in my life every day, in addition to all of my other work. So really, you know, grounding, um, And I guess the last kind of piece would be that anybody who's um, on the path pushing for any sort of social change, as we had talked about earlier, it's, it is really hard and and most days are losses and that's okay. That's actually the state of my existence is most days we lose and that's okay. um, Because any struggle worth fighting for is one that's really hard. And so um, if we, you know, on the days we get the wins, which is about once a year for me, you know, the Cosby trial, um, the Cosby sentencing, um, you know, you're going to get a loss the next day, the Mm -hmm. Kavanaugh hearing. So I, it's that, that is the nature of this work and, and to not be, you know, to use a cliche, not, not to be disheartened by that because, um, it really means that if you're, if you're having a lot of losses, it means you're really pushing up against a system that's pretty entrenched. Yeah. Yes. Well, I am so incredibly thankful that you spent the time to talk to me. I always love hearing your point of views and your all the data. I love the data. I love the numbers <laughs> because I believe, I truly believe um, that if we could provide our communities and our women with more data to understand how important it is for them to step forward and take those positions of power and that they are completely worthy and absolutely qualified. Um, how much stronger our economy, our globe, our people would be. Um, So thank you for your work. Thank you for everything that you do to push rights forward for everyone, people of color, for women, for for everyone, um, because it's it's hard work. So I'm, I'm glad you're on our side. Thank you. Well, likewise. Amen, sister friend. And <laughs> it's wonderful to know you, Jeanette. I mean, this is how we sustain ourselves, right? With our with our small uh, feminist posse to get through the day. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. This interview was a bit of a tough one for me, but we can't hide from these things because of our own scars or discomfort. I hope this conversation sticks to your ribs as you think of ways you can better show up for yourself and our girls. Vote, run for office, ask for a raise, but level up, sister. Let the women and girls around you know that we can do the same and when in doubt, show them the data. 
Thank you so much for being with me today. Please don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your girlfriends. I'm always interested in content that uplifts, so if you have things you would like to hear about, please share them with me in comments. You can also find me on Instagram at ms.janetteschneider or Twitter at msjwrites. Additionally, if you'd like to get deep in the work with me, pick up my book, Lore, Harnessing Your Past to Create Your Future, now available on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Until next time, in the words of my grandmother, love each other every day. Mm